Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Andrea Barrett. She is the winner of the National Book Award and the Rea Award for the short story. She is a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and an NEA Fellowship. She's also been a finalist for the Story Prize and the Pulitzer Prize. And yes, listeners, she may be the most decorated author to appear on the 200 plus episodes of Bookin. Her new collection is called Natural History, and it is published by our friends at W.W. Norton and Company. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. I'm really glad to talk to you. It's an honor to have you here, Andrea. And my first question for you is, you have written many novels, many novellas, and many short story collections. What, to you, is the difference in preparation and execution in writing a novel versus writing a collection of linked short stories? You know, I'm not sure that there really is a difference. I often don't know which it is I'm writing for quite a long time. So I think most commonly I prepare as if it's a novel. I just dive in and keep learning stuff and start writing stuff and thinking it's going to be a novel. And sometimes it turns into something else. But the horrible truth is I'm sometimes done as much research and spend as much time on a 30 page story as I have on a 300 page novel. They come out different lengths because those are the requirements of um, the characters and the plot and what I'm writing, but uh, I don't know what length they're going to be when I start them. You'd think I would, but no. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Andrea. Um, Let's now dive into this wonderful collection, Natural History, and into the first story, which is titled Wonders of the Shore. Wonders of the Shore is the name of a book that appears in this story of the same name. And you go into great detail about the cover of this book. Uh, My question, Andrea, is can you judge a book by its cover? (laughs) Uh, I can judge a book like that by its cover. That book is based on a a beautiful book that I own called The Sea Beach at Ebb Tide Mm -hmm. by a, a late 19th century naturalist named Augusta Foote Arnold. Um, And the book is dark green and it has these beautiful little seahorses and starfish embossed into the cover and a little, of course I picked it up. I didn't even know what it was about, but um, I picked it up when I was a kid and I've had it ever since and I've used it ever since, so. That is fantastic. And before we jump too far ahead, um, I wanna ask you about your usage of color in your writing. Is this something you pay special attention to? For example, in your first story, the cover of the book is olive green and later there's a couch that is olive green. Is this intentional for you as a writer to tie scenes and threads together with color? Uh, it's not. And that's such a great question. I didn't, I didn't know I did that. Um, and I think you're the first person who's ever asked me about the way I use color. Apparently I'm unconscious of it. Um, I'm very conscious of recurring words and images. So maybe color is a part of that, but I I love that you picked up on that. You'll have to teach me that sometime. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yes, some things jump out at me and I never know why. Well, um, what 
Andrea is involved in the history of this book, Wonders of the Shore. And what I mean is a good deal of the story is spent tracing this book's history. Um, I wrote a story included in an earlier book called Archangel, which is called The Island. And it's about when um, the central character, Henrietta Atkins, meets the woman who becomes her best friend, Daphne Bannister, um, on an island off the Massachusetts coast. And um, this story picks up later on in their lives. And um, so embedded in this story is the whole history of their last 10 years and the books that the two of them have written together and separately, the books they've read together and separately, a lot of those being Darwin's work. So it's uh, in some ways a story about reading, about learning, about learning with a friend, about sharing books with a friend, which is something that I really love to do. And I bet you do too, given what you do for work. Um, that passion you feel when you read a book you really love and the next best thing to that explosion of happiness you feel when you read a great book is giving it to someone who will also be made happy when they read it and then getting to talk about it. That's part of the thread that binds those two women together over their long friendship. Absolutely. Um, Andrea, and how do you keep track of all of your characters that um, are in multiple works that you've written? Do you have notebooks that you keep track of or is it all in your head? Oh, I wish it was all in my head. Um, even when I was young, I couldn't keep track of it. And now I can't tra keep track of anything, especially this. So um, yeah, I have notebooks. I have a giant diagram, uh, which is on the wall of my writing room. And there's a small version reproduced at the back of this book. Um, and then I have a long kind of computer file. Uh, it's like a chronology of all the characters in all six books. It starts in 1760 something, and it goes up to 2019, I think. So it's very long. It's like 20 pages long now. And every time one of the characters does something interesting or intersects with some historical event, I make another little entry in the catalog. And I have to go back and check. I mean, anyone who reads the books now knows more about this than I do. I have a big cheat sheet because I can't keep track of it all. Absolutely. Thank you. And I was thankful for that. Um, the diagram in the back of this book. Uh, speaking of history, Andrea, um, this book, Wonders of the Shore, has a history. Your collection is titled Natural History. The second story uh, is titled Regimental History. What does this term history mean to you and what does it mean to your collection? Um. History is really important to me. I guess that's probably obvious from, from my work, but um, I think a lot about the difference between history and historical fiction, about telling the stories of history, about what it means to tell them um, one way, a kind of academic, serious, footnoted way, and another way of fictional, emotional, sensual, rooted in the body way, how we understand events differently depending on how we approach them. And uh, as I was putting together this book, I started to realize that so many of the stories were about history, not about historical events, but actually about what is history? How do we make it? What are the sources we draw on to make it? What are the materials that we use to make it? And which of those get lost? Who gets to preserve those pieces? Who doesn't preserve those pieces? Um, 
how much accident is involved in what pieces are transmitted down to us. That's a lot of what regimental history is about. Um, when events happen, some of us will accrete documents about the event and some of us won't. Some of us will save those and some of us won't. Some of us will die and our house will get cleaned out by someone who throws it all away. And some of us will have someone come into the house who thinks, oh, those yellow papers are really interesting. I'm gonna save them. And all those are accidents. And yet that's what history gets made out of. It's just the accident of what's preserved. And that has in turn a lot to do with class and race and gender and economic status, what um, artifacts get saved, what don't, who deems that things are important and what aren't important. So those are all things that are running, I think, thematically through the book. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Andrea. Um, regarding this story, Regimental History, the second story in this collection, I interviewed a gentleman uh, a year or two ago, Doug Waller, who wrote a book called Lincoln's Spies, and he talked a bit about how balloons were used in the Civil War. Uh, what role did balloons play uh, in the Civil War, and what role do they play in this story, Regimental History? Um, I came across the stories of balloons fairly late. I, I was actually writing about the early history of flying in um, Hamlinsport, New York. And so I learned about these balloons and then dug backwards and found out about the um, about barrage balloons in the First World War and then further back, these observation balloons. And they were so interesting to me. They were tethered to the ground and people rose up and could look down onto the battlefield. There was, you know, they didn't have drones then. This was what we would think of as a drone. So you could see um, the regimental history is based on the Battle of Chancellorville, which there's very much written about. Um, and as it turned out, there was not a balloon observing that battle. There, there was meant to be a balloon, but it was such a delicious detail. I had to weave it into the story. At the end, um, in part because my characters come from a town where there were a lot of balloons and there was a very early history of flying. So they're very interested in, in that topic. Absolutely, thank you so much, Andrea. Listeners, we're gonna take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Andrea Barrett. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Andrea Barrett, author of Natural History, which is published by our friends at W.W. Norton & Company. Andrea, before the break, we were talking about the second story in your collection, Regimental History. Uh, this story largely involves um, two brothers who were lost in battle uh, during the Civil War, I believe they're brothers, and 
my question for you is with GPS technology, facial recognition technology, et cetera, could this type of story take place in our current era? In other words, is it possible anymore to disappear? I don't think you could disappear like that. Um, I mean, it's really interesting, the idea that, that at that time, a body could get left on a battlefield and no, and no one would know who it was if there wasn't documentation on the body. Um, and it's also the case that the whole movement of that story turns on letters and letters being sent back and forth and who writes letters now? Um, so th that information is missing. So we might not even know about those brothers in one way, cause there's no letters, but in another way we would have their DNA. We could check their teeth. We could do a million different things. They would never get lost in that way. But we also couldn't hypothesize in the same way about what might've happened to them. We would worry about them passionately, but I think in a different way, now we worry if we can't get information right away, that hour, that minute, that day, because we know it's possible to have it. I think then people didn't worry that minute because they knew it might take weeks before someone showed up. Um, if you had a head injury, you could actually be in somebody's house a hundred miles away for six months before somebody could track you down. It was such a different world. It's hard for us to realize that now, I think. It is, yeah. And one of my favorite parts of the uh, letters in that story um, were the pet peeves of misspelling and mispunctuation that still uh, existed in some of the readers. I, I definitely identified with that one. Um, I now want to move on to my current favorite story in this collection, which is Henrietta and her moths. Um, it feels weird to call this story a favorite, but it is. Um, first, Andrea, what roles have butterflies and moths and the study of them played in the history of literature. I think of Nabokov first, but I'm sure, sure there are others. Yeah, um, because butterflies have such old symbolism and they're such a part of Greek mythology, they've been important to writers for a really long time. Um, that said, I've only begun to get interested in butterflies and moths in the last four or five years. So I knew them as a literary symbol and I knew Nabokov's, of course, but um, my own ability to go outside and look at a butterfly is relatively new. I was out in the garden two days ago and um, there was some bee bomb kind of at the tail end of flowering, it's little red tube sort of wilting. And I heard this noise and I looked up and there was not one but two hummingbird moths in the bee bomb, unrolling those little tongues which show up in the story and drinking. And then a hummingbird came. Um, it's like, how did that happen? Uh, in the story, someone confuses the hummingbird with the hummingbird moth. They're startlingly different in size, but they do look like a lot. Um, they do look a lot like each other. So that was really fun. Um, I don't know if you remember some years back, there was a book called Nabokov's Blues. Do you know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I read that maybe 10 years ago. And um, that is certainly part of what sent me off actually looking more at butterflies as opposed to literary butterflies. I was mm. fascinated by that. It's a really good book. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Andrea. And listeners, um, I'm going to talk about the end of this story here. So if you are averse to spoilers, uh, I recommend that you pause here and come back to this interview after you have read this story, Henrietta and her moths, or skip forward 
about five minutes. I will give you a few seconds to do so. Here you are fumbling around for your device, pausing your phone, tapping your earbuds, whatever it takes. Good. Um, now, Andrea, is there anything more chilling to a parent than seeing a child hovering over their baby with a pair of scissors? What is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> And if there's something more chilling than that, I don't know what it is. I guess mm -hmm. a, a child with a giant knife hovering over their eye. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's honest to God. I don't know where that image came from. Um, mm -hmm. I know where the story started, but I do not know how it went in that direction. And I don't know how it ended there either. Mm -hmm. But um, Carolyn is such an obstreperous, such a bad little girl sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and you know how writers work. You, you take what's at hand and you try and combine it in some way. And I had a room and a little girl and a baby swaddled up and I had scissors and I had mm. bad behavior and parental inattention. And somehow those things just came together into that final image of the scissors snipping under the baby's cloth. It kind of gives me the willies. I was looking at it the other day and it's like, well, where, where'd that come from? Yeah, a very powerful scene, a very powerful image, the idea that you could open a baby up and the future person would come out fully formed. Um, I thought that that was just uh, terrifying and magnificent. Um, so thank you for writing that, Andrea. I now want to reference your story, The Accident, uh, which occurs around the advent of airplane technology. What is going on in this story, Andrea, and how often when a new technology or mode of travel like airplanes are introduced, are fatalities involved until the new technology is harnessed? Is this something that we accept in the name of progress that there will be a certain amount of fatalities? Um, that's a really interesting question, and I don't know the answer to it generally. I, I think that the same thing happened with automobiles and with early trains. I know mm -hmm. that it happened with um, air flight be because Hammondsport, New York, which is the town underlying Crooked Lake was one of the centers of early flight. Um, even before the Wright brothers, people were doing things there. And a mm -hmm. lot of people crashed and died in those fields. Um, the planes, if you look at the photos now, they're so astonishing, they're just, it looks like lawn rakes held together with string. There's just pieces of bamboo and bicycle wheels. And it, it's just nothing holding these people up in the air and the tiniest little engines. And all these curious people, invariably young, because who else would do this? People were 19, 20, 21. Just the mm -hmm. same way someone would get on a new skateboard now or a new kind of motorcycle, people would hop on those planes and, and they crashed a lot. Um, people got hurt. and fell in the lake and drowned or fell in the field and burned up. Um, it's interesting to me what would make a person do that. And yeah, I do think we still do it with whatever toys are at hand and, and sort of that's what those were then. They weren't a new mode of transportation quite yet. They were a, a discovery, a, a toy and amazement and, and yeah. Yeah, if and when, uh flying automobiles are introduced, would you, Andrea, be first in line to try them out or, or would you wait or would you just decide, hey, this isn't for me? Um, if I was in my 20s, I would have been first in line at this age. I'd wait, thank you. 
<laughs> you know, I used to climb and kayak too, and uh, oh, nice. I'm not a kid anymore. So, yes, understood. Um, well, Andrea, our time is running out here. I have loved speaking with you, and I love this collection, Natural History. But finally, uh, in your final story or novella, which is also titled Natural History, you write, quote, a well-designed experiment offered a question posed correctly to which an answer might be found, end quote. I'm hoping, Andrea, that you can unpack this statement for us. I oftentimes think of a question as preceding the design of an experiment, not the other way around. I'm not sure what you mean by that, I think. Yeah, so um, the quote is a well-designed experiment offered a question posed correctly, okay. which yeah. an answer might be found. And normally I think I will have a question and I will now create an experiment to find the answer to that question. Um, and what your quote is saying is that a design, well-designed experiment offers a question. So, so I'm what just... I'm trying to get at there is the idea that um, it's possible to make bad experiments. A lot of people, that's all they do is make bad experiments. And if you make a bad experiment, um, you're posing a question, but it's not a smart question, and the answer may be meaningless. So that's what the adjective, the well-designed is doing in there. So when you finally hit upon, you have a question in your mind, and you go off to make an experiment, and it doesn't answer the question because it wasn't correctly designed, and finally you make the experiment that makes it possible to ask the question, and then you can get an answer. But what that also implies is that the well-designed experiment, which makes um, possible an answer, only makes possible an answer, one small answer. So sometimes it's the shitty experiment that makes possible the answer that's really interesting. It's not the answer you wanted. It's not even the answer to the question you thought you were asking, but it's really interesting. The answer to the well-designed experiment can sometimes be sort of sterile because it's so well-designed. It's all compact and neat. And that, that's what, it's a scientific thing. That's what scientists think of as a well-designed experiment. Oh, I, I set this up just so to generate this one piece of data at the end, which tells me an answer. Um, I think that's probably why I'm a writer, not a scientist. I'm not really interested in the well-designed experiment. I'm interested in the messy thing that generates all sorts of answers. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes um, they also generate more questions, don't they? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the fun part. You ask a question and then 10 more questions come from that. And you, I mean, that's really what reading's about. If you're lucky, you pick up something looking for an answer. What you find is your brain exploding with a million more questions. And that's how we learn and how we grow and how we write more and how we move in the world if we're lucky and how we start a literary podcast. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, and thank you for writing this wonderful collection. I know our listeners are going to love it. Listeners, I've been speaking with Andrea Barrett, author of Natural History, which is published by our friends at W.W. Norton and Company. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Your questions are really interesting. Um, yeah, that was really fun. Thank you. Thank you.
Once again, I would like to thank Andrea Barrett for joining me. Copies of Natural History can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Quail Ridge Books and Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.